Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing excellent. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great, Lance. And for this episode, we have on one of our very best friends in the industry, this uh, true crime media space. It's everybody's favorite Maggie, Maggie Freeling. She is definitely the best Maggie that we know, possibly the best Maggie in this country. So good point there. She is our guest on our first appearance on the Outlier Podcast Festival, which was super fun. We were invited to close out the the weekend's festivities. Yeah, that was quite an honor to be a part of the Outlier Podcast Festival. And you can follow them on all social media platforms. And they're on Twitter at Outlier underscore HQ. And we uh, were introduced to a nice gentleman by the name of Ever Gonzalez by our friend and colleague Josh Hallmark, who runs uh, True Crime Bullshit, the podcast, the wonderful podcast. And uh, and so he's been associated with the Outlier Podcast Festival for a year or two now, and he introduced us, and we we got a spot, and we had a great conversation with Maggie Freeling about journalism in podcasting. Yeah, Maggie is a journalist. She was a public radio producer. She's from New York City, of course, and a lot of her journalism focuses on mental illness, criminal justice, and social issues, and we talked to her about being perceived as journalists in the podcast uh, true crime genre you and i are not journalists maggie is a seasoned journalist and we work with journalists so it was almost like trying to figure out how to define this new type of journalism and work together with the seasoned journalists and and understand that you you need to be humble in that approach Right. Uh, you can't really make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, Lance, and you can't do what we've done um, without making mistakes, uh, a lot of mistakes. And you're right. You have to be willing to mi- admit that they are mistakes and learn from them. And uh, I think that's something that not everyone can do. So I'm happy that we have a friend like Maggie who I think sees us as a teachable force. You know, obviously we're we're here with a platform to advocate for cases and expose injustices and i think maggie's along for the ride for all of that um but yeah we, if we make mistakes you got to learn from your errors absolutely that's correct and and we're still here and maggie's still here and maggie has a brand new show as well it's called unjust and unsolved if any show should be at the top of the apple podcast charts it should be unjust and unsolved it's a uh, program where she tackles innocent people who are locked away in prisons across the United States. Uh, there's a number out there. 20,000 innocent people are incarcerated and Maggie interviews them. She tells a story and this is a weekly podcast. Maggie interviews and tells a story about one person each episode who is unjustly incarcerated and it's all for a good cause and she will really try to expose the uh, the horrors of the criminal justice system when it's not used correctly when it's abused and uh, very fascinating podcast so check that out it's unjust and unsolved and it's uh, unjust and unsolved.com yes great show and you can find that on the obsessed network and uh, so i hope you enjoy this episode this conversation with maggie freeling from the outlier podcast festival thanks a lot for listening everybody a lot of fun thanks a lot to the outlier podcast festival for having us i am tim polari of crawlspace media we do the missing maura murray podcast we do crawlspace and empty frames and we uh run the crawlspace media network 
My partner here is Lance. What's up, Lance? What is going on? This is the first time you've ever introduced me and not asked me how I was, so I don't know what to say. Well, how are you? I am doing better than ever. I'm so excited to be here. What a way to end the week. And we have our good friend, our partner in crime or anti-crime, uh, Maggie Freeling, is our guest for this evening. So, Hi, guys. How's it going? What's up? It's going. I am exhausted, but it's going. Long week? Quite a long week. Quite a long <laughs> month, but you know. And you just launched your uh, brand new podcast that is really you on your own. You, you have been uh, on many podcasts, uh, including ours. Um, but you are also a part of NPR's Latino USA podcast. But now this is your own animal. Can you tell us a little bit about this podcast? Yeah, so I have been a producer for many years for all sorts of public radio stations, um, NPR included, NPR shows. Um, but yeah, so this is my first time um, having my own podcast where I am the host, reporter, producer, engineer, <laughs> I do everything. Um, it's, it's fun. It's nice to be my own boss. It's nice to do my own things. And you got this uh, podcast started through the Obsessed Network, and the Obsessed Network is run by the creative minds, the hilarious and uh, really uh, thought-provoking minds be behind uh, True Crime Obsessed and Obsessed with Disappeared. That's Patrick Hines. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with, with those folks, and how did that all come to be? Oh boy. So my history with them is pretty similar to yours. Um, you know, Patrick is equally as obsessed with all of us. And uh, so I guess, you know, he saw the documentary, The Disappearance of Maura Murray on Oxygen. He covered it for his podcast because True Crime Obsessed um, covers in a very funny way, true crime podcasts. So Patrick covered The Disappearance of Maura Murray. He saw all of us in it and we met at CrimeCon. Um, and you know, we both live in New York city. So it was like, oh my gosh, let's get drinks. You know, I was working in Harlem at the time. His house is on the way back. I literally had to pass it on the train. So we got drinks and just started talking and, you know, it just became him being like, look, I'm, I want to branch out. I want to make a network. I, I need to have you on my network. What do you want to do? And we ran through a few ideas and here we are. Well, I got to say that um, you being on his network and having a podcast is much better than his first idea, which was wearing your hair on his body. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to he wanted to take yeah. all. He does have a Maggie wig, though, I think like a, you know, and yeah. my coat. He, you know, he does what he does. It works for him. I, I will think say he looks better than I do, honestly. <laughs> he does wear it well. He does wear it well. And uh, I just want to say thank you to Josh Hallmark from True Crime Bullshit uh, for hooking us up with um, this spot here with the Outlier Podcast Festival. Uh, he is a professional, consummate podcast professional. He's great. And he really kind of is sort of like us in the way where we are amateur journalists who sort of stumbled into a podcast career. Um, which actually happens to involve a lot of journalism, um, which is bizarre because that, y you know, most amateurs, most people in an amateur field, you, you just can't really break through that professional level being an amateur. So we started our podcast, Missing Maura Murray, back in 2015, July of 2015. We've done almost 200 episodes on that case, and it's still going. Uh, the podcast led to the series, the document, the uh, disappearance of Maura Murray, done by the Oxygen Network, uh, which is when we met Maggie Freeling. 
um, which was, I, th- I believe we met her probably 2016. We met, we yeah, all met. I think we were yeah. filming in 2016. We met. Okay. So, so really this amateur attempt that we, uh, that we started back in 2015 la- landed us all here um, right now. And we're still amateurs. You're a professional. I guess one, one thing I'm curious about is what, as a professional journalist, what was it like hearing the Missing Maura Murray podcast uh, from in the, at the beginning? I mean, it must have been life changing. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a sense, and I do, I do, you know, I've been a fan of Josh and um, his podcast and we haven't met or talked. So Josh, hello. Thank you for putting everyone here. I would love to talk with you about Israel Keys. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Um, but, you know, um, I thought it was so cool to hear your podcast. You know, I had been at that point in audio journalism. I guess I started 2014. I started in audio journalism at WHIY in Philadelphia. Um, So I thought it was pretty cool um, what you guys were doing. And that was always something I wanted to do. I was like, how do I do this? How do I do this on my own? And over the years, I know I've asked you guys a lot of those questions. Like, how do I break away from public radio? How do I, you know, do my own thing and be my own boss. How do I start that? So I really admired you guys and thought that was very, very cool that you were doing that and, and making a living off of it. Um, so I, I commend you. And that was really great. Well, it brings us, um, thank you, but uh, making a living is, uh, I mean, we're raking it in hand over <laughs> fist, first of all, but no, that brings us to the point of this conversation, which uh, Tim kind of alluded at in the beginning of, of his intro there we're we're not journalists we're we i remember back in the day when we started doing this um we said you know i feel weird even being called a journalist because people just assume you're you are a journalist if you're talking about something like a missing persons case or a cold case and you you have some air of authority about yourself uh the only reason why we did is because we had researched it a lot before we actually started uh talking behind a microphone and it felt awkward it felt very uh very strange to talk to nobody and just know that it was being recorded on to something that would eventually go somewhere. Um, it felt even more strange when people listened to it. And then they started calling uh, Tim and I journalists, and we had to say, no, we're not journalists. Um, and that's sort of the topic that we want to get at, which is how, where is the line between what you... I, I believe you graduated from UMass Amherst in 2011. Uh, podcasting was pretty new, you know. It was it was there, but it was uh, it, it wasn't at the at the um, you know true crime podcasting certainly wasn't. I was doing podcasting in a journalism class, maybe it was a communications class, journalism or communications class in 2009, and we were exclusively using GarageBand, like podcasting. Yeah. I remember looking at like one time, like a, a timeline of like when podcasting became big and it obviously became big with Serial, but there were clearly, you know, others around. Um, I, I think it was around 2009, like This American Life might have switched to podcasts, some, something mm. like that. I could be totally off, but it was around that like 2009 time, this like idea of podcasting became like a thing. Yeah. And, and you know, back to, you know, to your question, Tim, because you asked and now Lance, you've asked about being a journalist versus, you know, um, I, I don't know, what would you guys call yourselves? Just podcasters or are you citizen detectives in a sense? Yeah, that's true. I think digital journalists, I have called myself that at times. Yeah, I feel I feel bad calling myself anything that I haven't earned a degree at except U.S. Marshall because Tim uh, knows and you know that Art Roderick has bestowed upon me the honorary uh, U.S. Marshall uh, uh, 
title. Um, other than that, like uh, if you if you say like journalists or digital journalists, I feel like I, I feel like I needed to go to school for that. So that's really my question is where where is the line? I, I know that people would disagree with me, but I, I do think to be titled a journalist, um, I, I do think you you'd probably I, I would have to say that you need to be you know, trained in a sense, like there are rules and there are ethics and there are things that you need to know. And, you know, I took all sorts of law and ethics classes for my master's, you know, like there, there are things that I just think you really need to know. And I think per, this is very much my personal belief is that, you know, when we start calling people who, who might not have the same kind of, you know, ethics background journalists, I, I do think it gets confusing for folks who are digesting news and are, are digesting media. That's not to say you can't be, you know, as informed or knowledgeable as a, a journalist. I just think, you know, the, the title really implies something that, that, that is different than, let's say, what you guys are doing, you know, when, when you mention what you're doing and, and, um, yeah, so back in school, my undergrad, 2009, you know, there wasn't really such thing as like what you guys are doing. Um, there wasn't such thing as like a podcaster that people go to to seek information. It was, it was definitely different. You know, you got the news on the radio and you read it through s journalists who have sources. And I, and I do think now it is quite, quite blurred. Um, I, I just think, I don't know. And, and maybe, you know, tell me what you feel, but I think giving somebody the title of like, I am a journalist really implies a high bar and a high standard. And, and I know, you know, your podcast is so wonderful, but what you guys do is very different from what I do. You know, I do a lot of sourcing. I do a lot of, you know, record checking and you guys do that. But I also know that you guys you're quick with information in a sense, you know, you get the information out and then you'll go back and correct yourself. And for me, I would never, I can't do that as a journalist. I would never put something out if well, I hadn't. Well, uh, we, what you say we play fast <laughs> and loose here? Yeah, you're giving no, us way too much credit. You guys, so, so, <laughs> we don't, no, we don't correct do ourselves. A wonderful <laughs> thing. You guys do a wonderful thing where you take these interviews. You're not claiming to be a journalist, which when you do, like I said, you know, there, there are, um, there's a really high bar put to that. So you don't claim that you can do first person interviews and, and people can say things, you know, and, and it, I guess in a sense it, you shouldn't obviously put out libel or slander in any way, but I think it's a little looser. You know, you can have somebody giving their first, first person account of things, but when someone does that with me, I still go and I, I fact check everything that they say before I put it out. I make sure I have documentation of what they're saying. It's definitely different and you can yell at me all you want about that. No, do, do you do you guys watch uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, right? Yes. I feel like a journalist the way Charlie feels like a lawyer. You know when he calls himself a lawyer? Bird law. Yeah. Yeah. Bird law. Yeah. Well, yeah. in a sense, like, I guess, like, where is the, di like, I don't know. Like, I think, I do think for someone to call themselves a journalist, I really do think you need to be trained in that sense. Well, it, the amateur, I, oh, I can do it, uh, doesn't really exist in too many professions, if you think about it. Uh, like, you can't just call yourself an amateur dentist and uh, sit someone down in a chair. Which I've done to myself. Right. And, and you can do it, but you can't do it and call yourself a professional dentist. There's repercussions. Yeah. yeah.
Um, and, and I think that there's, that's, that's the point that I'm making. Like, I know that everything I do, there are repercussions for. Um, that's what my career is based on, that I'm a, a journalist. So I, I have a very, <laughs> a lot of repercussions. But in that same sense, like, I don't think your career is necessarily at, at the same stake level. You know, you don't call yourself a journalist. And that's probably a good thing for you guys. Hey, when you were um, in school for journalism, what were you thinking you were going to uh, investigate you know like as an investigative journalist uh where did you want to get into it for the investigative purposes like i want to go uh shake things up or or you know what was the because that's what you do now i'm unjust and unsolved your your podcast is shaking things up and it's for a good cause uh is that like what you were thinking back in the day always always i you know it's funny because when patrick and i were trying to conceive this idea it was like he wanted to kind of do something similar to True Crime Obsessed, which was like funny. And I'm like, I'm not funny. Like, I'm very serious. I'm a very serious, like academic journalist. I mean, I'm funny in my personal life, but like not, not in my work. It's just, it's, that's not what I do. It's always very serious. I've never really covered anything that's light. I've, I, you know, I, I covered genocide and immigration and very, really fun topics. Um, so I did, I always thought, you know, in my head, I've always wanted to be like a, um, like a democracy now, like Amy, Amy Goodman. Um, like I've always wanted to be someone like that, just like doing on the ground, finding the truth and really, you know, grassroots, um, investigations and and grassroots advocacy and grassroots reporting is always what I wanted to do. Um, I really, you know, in school, I thought I was going to be kind of like an international reporter. And I always pictured myself like in Iraq. Oh, no kidding. What, what was the uh, appeal of of that? Like why, why, why Iraq you wanted? To... Well, just like kind of war report or just like uh -huh. on the ground, you know, because I just think they're, you know, at the time, um, things, things are definitely different now. But at the time, I felt like we just were so sheltered from what was truly going on. And okay, so I, I had a bunch of a, a couple of very good friends at the time who were in Afghanistan and were telling me very scary, top secret things. Um, I had seen videos of you know from from cameras, and you know it was just things I had never seen on the news, had never at the time heard reported. So I, you know, I always thought like, okay, that's, that's something I want to do. I need to cover this. This is disturbing what is happening in these countries um, to civilians particularly. And it just went in a different direction um, because I think there are wonderful people there doing that kind of reporting now. And I felt we needed a little more reporting here at home. Yeah. And I, what would the process be to even get into something like that? Um, that's a great question. I, I did for a while consider my safety in, in that kind of, um, uh -huh. environment. You know, I, it's really, it, there are very few things that like, you know, as a lot of us who digest true crime and a lot of media, you know, there are very few things that I can't see or watch. But when I do hear about reporters, you know, being held hostage it's it's really disturbing and that like really freaks me out because i think of how you know at least mentally close i was to to being there um and so i think that really deterred me you know 
of course, there's a lot of danger in what we do. I mean, speaking about the Moore Murray case, I mean, it's just anytime you're, you're vocal about something um, that there is a partisan side to, I think that you do put yourself in any kind of danger. Yeah, interesting point, because there's that, that old adage that says if you're not upsetting people, you're doing something wrong. Um, do you think that's true 100% of the time? Because you could just go and upset everybody all the time if you wanted to. Well, yeah. I it depends because I did a story. I was down in Santa Fe reporting uh, a story about this conquistador pageant that had been a tradition in Santa Fe for a hundred years. This came out on NPR's Latino USA, and there was the there was three sides to this story. There was the Pueblo indigenous people who obviously a conquistador pageant really glorifies what happened, you know, in the mass slaughter and genocide and enslavement of the Pueblo people in New Mexico and Santa Fe. There are the Hispano people. That's what they call themselves. They're descendants from Spain who have also been on this land for a very long time. As we know, the conquistadors came a very long time ago. So they really do also consider themselves quite indigenous to the land and then there were the caballeros who was this religious organization who ran the pageant and so i was down there trying to be as fair to all sides when reporting this and what was happening with all of these protests and there there was a lot of conflict going on about this pageant as you can imagine the, the pueblo people were not happy about it and the other side said this is our heritage it was really a coming moment with the the confederate statue it was all happening at the same time and pretty much everyone was mad at me about that article <laughs> that that audio piece except um the the pueblo people actually they they felt that that was the first time their voices had been heard nationally and they had messaged me the activists that i featured were really happy but the hispanos and the caballeros were not happy and i really truly thought i gave them the fairest possible side that I could I really went through this like I liked I did like these people I liked them and I tried to be really fair to them and it's hard to do that when you you're running a pageant about um the genocide of of a a people so you know that was my first instance where I was like wow nobody was happy with me for this and I think I did my job correctly yeah, what's that feel like, I guess? Because we've definitely experienced some of that too. Uh, we never really want to rock the boat or piss people off on purpose, but uh, sometimes facts tend to do that. Um, what's that been like in uh, in your case for that one especially? I was a little bummed out about that one. Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm reporting, it'll, it'll be, you know, in the government or whoever, and I don't care if they're mad at me. You know, that's that's they're always going to be upset when you're doing your job right. But, but these were just, just average civilians. And it was a bummer. Like I really liked them and I spent a lot of time getting to know them. And I, and I, I did see their side of things in that sense. And it, it sucked, but I knew that everything I wrote was factual. It was accurate. And they thought they didn't look great in that sense. And, and, you know, again, how, how do you look great when you're running a a pageant? for a hundred years about the enslavement and genocide of native Americans. Like that's not, it wasn't me saying that it came out in the piece, you know, it was, um, it was, it was a bummer. I was sad. I liked, I liked them and, and I thought they were good people. So I was sad. They were mad at me. Do you hate them now? <laughs> no, they were really great people. They let me in their home. They let me follow them. I mean, you know, it was, 
I, that's, that's, I think the hardest part is like when people allow you into their lives and then they're mad at you, but you know, I, I did my job. I reported factually. I, I followed them. That's the great part about audio too. Is like, yes, of course you can cut things to, you know, make someone say something differently. Again, we have a very high standard for that. You know, when you're reporting for a place like NPR, you, you can't, you can't do that. So that was kind of the good thing about it. I didn't make them say anything they didn't say. I mean, they said some things that were just like, you said NPR, which is going to set Tim off. <laughs> uh, speaking of NPR, um, obviously you learned a lot from us and missing more Murray and everything, but what have you learned from working at NPR? So, so just because it always happens, it's not you guys, but the show aired on NPR. I didn't work for NPR, but either way, I had to follow NPR rules and standards. I mean, I learned a lot. There's a lot of, of rules, you know, there's a lot of, checking with legal. Can you do this? Can this happen? I mean, I really think that that's, you know, this distinct line between being a journalist and being, you know, I guess a a podcaster, citizen detective in that sense. It's like, there is a high bar, like NPR, myself, we very quickly could have gotten sued or, you know, lost credibility in that you never want that to happen. I, as, as a reporter whose work was being aired on NPR, I am a liability for them. So they put their trust in people. Um, so there's a lot of trust that goes into it. And, and I did learn a lot. And now I take that into, you know, between my undergrad in journalism, my master's in journalism and working, having NPR rules and standards that I have to follow. I take all of that now, you know, almost shit, a decade into my podcast. And, and I, I abide by so much of that. I think the only thing I do not abide by is now I feel like I can be more of an advocate and a, more partial than before. Before there was always this line where you're not an advocate, you're a journalist. And now I feel like I can finally, you know, be myself in that sense where I can blend practicing journalism, but obviously I'm advocating for the wrongfully convicted. Right. And it's like you're, you, you're in charge of the reins, like you hold the reins there. Um, and you've come from, you know, a, a pretty, uh, intense background of, of standards. So, uh, at the same to time, to be clear, you know, Amber Hunt from the Cincinnati Inquirer who hosts and produces the accused podcast, um, mm-hmm. is, my editor and she does my fact checking and she's a veteran journalist in, yeah. you know, for investigations. So besides me, you know, I do still have a safety net as well. So everything we are putting out, you know, is really, really vetted. That's yeah, great. It's pretty cool. And you, you talked about um, covering that uh, pageant that celebrates uh, genocide Um and yet we have conversations daily about the Moore Murray case and almost daily you say, I've never seen anything like this. I think that's kind of remarkable. What, what were you thinking when you got into Moore's case and where it's at now? Oh, boy. Um, I didn't think that the online stuff would be as bad as it is and has become. Um, I never was a Redditor, a blogger, you know, I didn't 
I do know a lot of journalists use that. I think I went on Reddit one time for a source. My friend and I were trying to do a story about adult circumcisions. <laughs> we like went on an adult circumcision page on Reddit to find like a person who wanted to talk to us about it. But other than that, like I truly, ne- I did, never spent time on Reddit. Yeah, it's 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 a world that I I don't I don't like. I don't like that I got sucked into. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. I think you guys having this idea of making a documentary about the characters in a specific high profile case where so much of it is based online is brilliant. Um, I think especially today, there's so much of it that has become, it's just a world that is, and like, I don't know how much you guys talk to your partners about it, but like, I don't, I'm like, you don't even, it's just like a whole other, I'm like, I can't even begin to talk about this bizarre trolling rabbit holes. Maggie, Maggie, if you're saying that, that trolls and harassment and online threats and uh, fake tips and someone using a voice changer, if you, if you're saying that stuff is too much in a missing persons case, I don't know what to tell you. You've signed up for the wrong missing persons case. It's wild. I I truly, there are many, many days. I think you guys probably get the like fear and loathing texts where I'm like, why did I ever agree to do this? Like it didn't benefit my life in any way. Like I wanted to help a family and now this is what's happening. Now I have stalkers. Now I have people threatening to kill me just because I wanted to help a family. Like it's really, really um, horrible. Yeah. And what what's what's equally kind of bizarre in the whole thing is how you are invested in this um but you you haven't like dove in to contribute to what's happening online, right? You don't go on Twitter and and go back and forth. So if we're texting and and James Renner often texts texts with us as well, he'll say something like, "Oh, this happened." And you're usually like you usually uh, comment with, oh, show me a screenshot, like catch me up on this. I have no idea uh, what's you're, happening. Right. You're still involved with Moore's disappearance, but you're not involved in that end of the um, of, of the, the media, the social media part of it. Uh, but it's fascinating to me that people think that you are like even even though you don't comment. And how many fake accounts do you have on Twitter? Yeah, Maggie? Right. Yeah, I couldn't even Fill figure it. out how Fill to it. make my own. The only reason I have a Reddit account is because it was like the, the AMAs that ask me anything years ago i think it was like 2017 i tr- i truly have no idea it was literally after the show yeah and the only reason i was doing it and i told this to julie morris sister i said the only reason i'm doing any kind of like public engagement in this sense is to help you people are sending me tips like i want to help you i don't freaking care about engaging on reddit are you kidding me so the wait, only wait. reason I had a Reddit account was for that. This is not. This is flying in the face of everything. That doesn't track, Maggie. You, you're you're ready to argue back with people anytime someone says anything. About I you have on too Twitter. much going on in my life to literally spend time arguing online. Like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Like, it's. I mean, yes. obviously, I know you are, but like, <laughs> like in just in general, I'm like, really? Like, I have no time to be online. I can't. I don't even have time to leave my house because I'm so busy working. Like. Have you listened to my ads on my podcast? They're all like, oh my God, I don't get to sleep. I don't have time for meal prep. Get this like meal kit because I can't meal, meal prep. Yeah, I, I actually fast <laughs> It's my forward. life. Yeah, you, I fast you have ads? How did you get ads so fast? 
Well, it truly is a bizarre um, set of circumstances. The, the, the Moore Murray case is unlike anything that anyone's ever seen. We hear that all the time. And, you know, it's sort of unfortunate because it would be great if some of the lesser known cases had this much attention. It just so happens that this one has all of the elements that is, I guess, appealing to everybody uh, who wants to solve a, a mystery. But I don't know if people want to solve a mystery or they just want to scream their theory as loud as possible. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, like, why I, is it like I, that? I do think that I, I think people need to feel important. You know, everyone wants to be seen and heard in a sense. And I think people find that outlet here. And I I think it's really sad. I'm so happy now to be in this new community of wrongful convictions where every single person has a common goal. And that is to help the person who is wrongfully convicted. Like, so Jason Flom, he's on the board of directors of the Innocence Project. He has one of the only other like weekly telling a story, wrongful conviction. And, and I knew that when I was coming out with mine, they're just very different. His are, his are very like interview based and he's obviously Jason Flum and has a lot of connections and mine is more like storytelling. But, you know, I, I, was, I was afraid. I was like, oh my God, are we going to have some like beef? You know, I, I don't know. I don't want to have beef. I want to work together. That's how I am. Jason Flum, I'm nobody. And he, his people reached out immediately to my people and said, like, let's do something. This is great. Can we advertise your podcast? The more attention on wrongful convictions, the better. And I was like, oh my God, this, what? Like, we're all, we're all friends. This is beautiful. Like everyone gets along. Everyone is grateful. Everyone is thankful. Everyone has the same goal. And it's, it's scary that it's not like that in the Mora case. Sorry, guys. I'm onto, a, I'm onto a better world now. <laughs> so you're saying in your community of wrongful convictions, unlike the Maura Murray case, people who are in this wrongful conviction conviction community, they don't launch fake accounts on Twitter and try to further their own theories I don't think these people thoughts. would even understand what you're speaking about. <laughs> I, oh. I truly... I, because it's serious. And that's the saddest part is so much of Mora's case has become a joke. Like in the saddest, saddest way, like everything is so serious. Like, you know, we have a, a wrongful conviction. Um, uh, my podcast group now, we have a podcast group, but I know Jason Flom has a podcast group and it's just people sharing petitions and people being like, you know, in my group, I make sure to say like, hey, this person's wife, this person's husband, they're here to answer questions. Like it is so serious. It's all very serious and productive. And to think about how many like trash talking Facebook groups there are for Mora and trolls. And it's just like, it's really sad. Oh, man, maybe you should uh, come back into the Maura Murray community and, uh, you know, like shake things up like the like the sheriff's back in town. And <laughs> pew, yeah, pew. we need that attitude. It's sorely missing. They don't want me in that <laughs> no. community. I'm done. <laughs> um, no, I, am where, I am where I'm wanted. <laughs> I'd rather talk to people in Rikers Island. Yeah, I would. I, honestly, I would rather talk to people who, yeah. you know, want want me to help them, who, who seek me out. Um, you know, to, to say that, you know, the amount of people who do, and there were people reaching out to me to, to do things on Maura's case. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this. It's. Yeah. So this, this is the official retirement announcement from Maggie Freeling on the Moore Murray case. Anytime Julie asked me to do something, I will do it. And that's why I did it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, it doesn't seem like I need to, or have to, or am wanted to. 
I don't engage in the drama. I don't want anything to do with that. So, you know, that's it. Your, uh, your podcast is Unjust and Unsolved, and you speak with the wrongfully convicted. How do you know that they are wrongfully convicted? Oh, can I guess? Can I guess? They contacted you, and they're in prison, and they said, hey, I'm wrongfully convicted. Put me on your show. And you're like, sure, let's have a phone call right now. I'll put it up tomorrow. You got Zoom? Exactly. Something close to that. But um, no, that's the joke that everyone in prison is innocent. So at least for season one right now, I have an incredibly high bar. You know, they are either vetted by the Innocence Project. Um, they have had investigators, you know, they've been covered enough where I've seen the evidence. And again, I, I go through case files. I look at this stuff. I talk to people you know, like the one that just came out this week, Bob Ruff had investigated this case for months. It was on his podcast, um, Bob Ruff with Truth and Justice, who, who does a lot with the West Memphis Three. You know, as, as someone else, you know, he investigated uh, this case. There had been many investigations on this case. You know, it's, it's very obvious the facts show this person is innocent. So that's, that's the bar I'm setting with season one. And I don't know if I told you guys this yet, because I, I just got this news, but one of the cases I was looking into covering the investigator. So I'm actually going down in two weeks to meet with Jason Baldwin um, from the West Memphis Three. He uh, has his own um, innocence organization. And um, I'm meeting with one of, one of his private investigators. And so, so they're covering this case. and. I figured, okay, this is great. Jason Baldwin's probably going to take this case. There's probably a very high bar for this person's innocence. You know, I talked to their advocate. And then when they finally went there and started speaking to um, their uh, alibi witnesses, it, it kind of started to unravel. And the investigator called me and said, you know, this person might be innocent, but I, I, would, I would maybe stay away this season. You know, right now I would, I would maybe stay away. So, you know, that's, that's the bar that I'm, I'm, I'm really talking to investigators and people like that. So, but that was fascinating. You know, it, that was really sad too, because I, I, I spoke to him. Um, and do I personally believe he's innocent? Yeah. But does that mean he's innocent? I don't know. Do, do I think he did enough time? Do I think 20 years is enough time? Yes. <laughs> that's a whole other issue. That's the criminal justice system. When you started doing this, did you expect to visit them in prison because you got interrupted by COVID, right? Yeah, I did. I did. I got to visit JJ and that was literally right. like the day the COVID announcement for, you know, all visitations stopping. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I had three interviews lined up in Texas death row. They don't have phones. So I have to visit them in person, you know, to do the interviews. And I don't see that happening anytime. So that's, those are a lot of cases that are now getting pushed back that, you know, they're on death row. They're, these are urgent stories that need to be told. And, and one of them I asked, I said, hey, you know, you write me a lot of letters. Can I have a voice actor, you know, say, you know, verbatim what you tell me in these letters? And he said, I do not want a voice actor on my case. So, you know, these are oh. stories that we're, you know, we're pushing back. Um, COVID's really, really interrupted a lot of this. So did you, um, consider how you would mentally prepare to interview somebody 
on death row? Because I can imagine that would be a bit trying. Well, it's a learning experience. Um, I am a nice person and I did figure out with this one man who is, uh, <laughs> who is a very <sighs> salty is not the word. And there is no word to describe having five stays of execution and being on death row for 35 years. I'm, I'm just trying to help. And, and he had written me some letters, you know, I guess I sent him a book of crossword puzzles and Sudoku because I know that, you know, just from reading Damien Eccles's stories, you know, they just have books. They just have, so in one of my letters back to him, I just like sent some of this. I love Sudoku. I do it all the time. And he wrote me back being like, uh, you know, don't patronize me. Like I am a established lawyer. I don't need your silly Sudokus. And I was like, I'm learning. I'm learning. I, you know, like, how do you talk to somebody on death row? What, you know, you know, that man is a particularly like hardened person. You know, it's, he was an innocent man who the system has completely screwed him over. He was almost executed five times. Um, of course he's going to yell at me for sending a Sudoku. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so stupid. Like how, how dare I, you know? That's interesting. Talking about how hardened he is, and he's been, he's been there, you know, like lined up to be executed five times. Well, I think people uh, forget that death row is also solitary confinement. He's been in solitary right. confinement for thirty-five years. But what if a person who has been in prison for so long and has had that boomerang of emotion? Right, you're on death row. You're in solitary confinement. Oh, you're not. Oh, you're on death. You like over and over and over, how does that person function when they get out into, into society? Well, that's what I always say. I say when they get out, because I'm, I'm, I, you know, want to put that positive energy into the world. You know, it's, there is no, uh, there's no programming in our system for people that are locked away for life. There is no kind of you know, half of these, half of these people I speak with, you know, people who are on, um, uh, who are, who are doing life or on death row, a lot of them, depending on the state, can't even take classes or go to school because they say, you know, you're, you're going to die here. We don't need to prepare you for anything. You're lesser than you, you're whatever, you know, we, we don't need to put resources into you. And then exactly they get out. So I have another podcast coming out this fall, winter. Um, it's a six part investigative or documentary series about a man who was expected to die in prison and he's been released and it's following his story. You know, what does that look like to eat with a fork for the first time in 25 years? Um, what's it like to shower on your own when you're not surrounded by people? I mean, you're talking about like the simplest things in life and and then it's it's that, and then it's like how what is it how does it feel when you go to apply for a job and you have to answer that question, and then you have to explain yourself and you have to all like start from way behind everybody else uh before before you can prove yourself and uh we've been talking to um Doreen Giuliano who's um uh John Juca's mother, and John Juca's been in prison for nineteen years now. Uh, it's 16. Yeah, this is a big New, New York case. Um, took place in Brooklyn, um, and uh, and there is a victim, Mark Fisher, and uh, there is a killer in prison, and then John Juca is also in prison. And his mother, uh, Doreen Quinn Giuliano, actually incredibly went undercover uh, to befriend one of the jurors 
uh, on her son's murder trial, which he was convicted in. And she knew that he knew John and she befriended him as a different person and got a confession from him, got it taped and brought it to the judge and it it still didn't work. They actually did um uh what what do they call overrule his conviction at one point and just recently yeah and then it was re- reinstated in uh 2019 I believe. So yeah, it's been quite a, a wild ride for uh for John Juca. Yeah, and what what I was going to say is uh even if he gets out, so the the process that they go through is that you know, it's over it's overruled and and he's up for, you know, a a, a another trial but in the in the interim they 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 keep him in rikers so he gets transferred from one prison to another prison and in the interim he's kept in rikers and that's just a tactic so that and they they dangle it in front of him and and say just just plead guilty plead guilty we'll give it it'll be time served you'll get out but he's got so much um pride and not pride because pride can sometimes have a negative connotation he has is so much will and so much like belief in himself that he doesn't he, he won't he'll 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 continue the path of saying i didn't do it so why would i even say i did this why is that going to be on my record but literally he's in fear for his life at rikers i mean you don't even have to be a true crime fan to know that rikers is uh probably in the top five of the worst prisons in the world uh, yeah he he was moved he was moved back upstate yeah yeah he was there when when his conviction was overturned and before it got uh reinstated so he was there for maybe like eight months or a year or something like that yeah, that's something I learned doing this. Prisons and jails are, are different. Jails are, jails, Rikers is horrible. I mean, a jail is meant to hold you for, it, it's a holding, you know, it's right. where you go overnight or, you know, you're not supposed to be there for a long time. They are not sustainable for that. I mean, Khalif Browder, he was there for three years and killed himself. I mean, Rikers is a terrible place. So yeah, for, for Juca to be there for that long is is also just it's horrible. He was saying that the he had to uh, tape books to himself, and just in case he was uh, stabbed overnight, that it would at least be some protection. Yeah, he saw people stabbed right in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Th- and that's the tactic that they use. That's the. I mean, there's no coincidence that they choose Rikers as the jail in which he's kept in the interim between. <laughs> they could have given him bail. I mean, he at the oh, point they where his conviction. Could've was overturned he was not a convicted murderer he could have got bail. right well that i don't know if you guys follow followed khalif browder's story he was only there for three years because he couldn't make bail he couldn't make bail and they kept him there for three years i mean the system is i mean i've stepped into a whole other world of like how disturbing our system is like when when i was doing missing persons with you guys like i know we had talked a bit about um Jane and John Doe's and, and, you know, the different kinds of systems that uh, NamUs and, 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 you know, trying to find and identify somebody who's missing. I mean, that, that, that's a whole other mess. And then now I'm in this whole other mess of a world with bail and bond and, and appeals and going to the same judge who presided over your case and then appealing to them. It's just, it's a mess. It's, everything is a mess. Uh, no doubt about it. 
And, um, and yeah, it lands to your point about trying to get John to just plead. Um, yeah, you know, we, we had spoken with Doreen and she's in tears and saying this is, you know, that's really tough to even hear your son saying, I'm not going to do that when she knows he could be out if he just did. And we're trying to tell her like, look, John would be an amazing advocate. He can be a speaker. He can, uh, have a podcast, um, for God's sake. And, uh, not be on the an advocate. network. <laughs> right uh and and try to make a living that way um if he's out as a well that, that is like jason baldwin they took the alfred plea um the west memphis three took the alfred plea so they they were released and are allowed to say i'm innocent but are technically convicted killers um and jason started his own organization it's called proclaim justice i didn't say that before but jason's organization is proclaim justice and he's now trying to help other innocent people yeah, we uh, got to put you in touch with Doreen Quinn Giuliano. Uh, you've got to hear her story um, about going undercover. It's absolutely incredible. It's amazing the things that, um, and I know this happens in missing persons cases all the time. You know, we have um, uh, Alyssa Turney's sister, uh, Sarah Turney, you know, these families that do anything and everything to get their loved one back or find some kind of closure and I hear so much of this too with, with families and, and spouses of those wrongfully convicted. I mean, I would like to think I'm that kind of person that would do that too. Well, I think you're on the right path. I really do. I think the, I mean, we, we had you on to talk about your show and I think it's, uh, it, it's exactly the show that you need to do. It's exactly your show and it's uh, so important. Absolutely. And it's fantastic. So check it out at unjustandunsolved.com. Also available podcast players everywhere. Check us out too. Crawlspace-media. Check out the Disappearance of Maura Murray uh, docu-series, six-part docu-series that aired on the Oxygen Network. Uh, It is excellent. And uh, we talk a little bit about our podcast in there, but you get to see Maggie and we're we're in the show as well. Uh, But yeah, a lot of time spent in New Hampshire, a lot of time spent at the Applebee's uh, in, in the White Mountains. And, well, uh, I, yeah. and I want to say, you know, I know we talked a lot about like the dark side of that, of that particular case, but I mean, there, there is a real family and there is a real missing person. And I think, you know, you guys and myself, um, would agree it's, it's close. I mean, I, I feel like something is going to snap. So I thank you guys for doing, you know, everything you can for that case and that family. And I think, you know, the more people that do pay attention and, and know something can, can really help thank you so much to the outlier podcast festival this was an absolute blast thank you ever for organizing this and for everybody who's watching um this is the first time we've done it so hopefully everybody enjoyed it and uh yeah thank you so much 